This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 15th of May 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And to be frank, it's a little bit grim out there, but hopefully we've got some sparkling conversation that will warm you up during the next half an hour. Ruth Michelson will be here to take us through the newspapers. And then... Last Sunday, I went to Columbia Road Flower Market in London's East End. It's been a regular Sunday habit for decades. That's our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. We'll have a chat with Daniel Gorman of English Pen, the writer's human rights organisation. Plus, Andrew Muller looks back on the week. We've learned that should Johnson be unable to raise this sum soonish, the gaiety of the nation may be enlarged in coming weeks by hired goons kicking in the UK's most famous door and seizing the Downing Street trouser press. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here are the headlines. Israeli planes renewed airstrikes in Gaza early today and Hamas militants responded by firing rockets into Israel as their battle entered a fifth night and US and Arab diplomats sought an end to the violence. Since Monday, at least 132 people have been killed, including 32 children and 21 women, Palestinian medical officials said. Among the eight dead in Israel were a soldier patrolling the Gaza border and six civilians, including two children. That's according to Israeli authorities. Myanmar's army battled local militia fighters in the northwestern town of Mindat today, residents said, to try and quell a rebellion that sprung up to oppose the junta that seized power in the Southeast Asian country in February. The fighting in Mindat, Chin State, underlines the growing chaos in Myanmar as the junta struggles to impose authority in the face of daily protests, strikes and sabotage attacks after overthrowing elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi. The junta imposed martial law in Mindat on Thursday and then stepped up attacks on what it called armed terrorists. An uncrewed Chinese spacecraft successfully landed on the surface of Mars today, the state news agency reported, making China the second spacefaring nation after the United States to land on the Red Planet. The rover, named Zurong, will now survey the landing site before departing from its platform to conduct inspections. It will study the planet's surface, soil and atmosphere. Zurong will also look for signs of ancient life, including any subsurface water and ice, using a ground-penetrating radar. And in our Monocle Minute weekend edition, we discover how Lisbon locals are embracing the benefits of an unseasonably quiet city, share an excited word with the director of the forthcoming in-person Art Basel Hong Kong, and reveal a chance to get your hands on a mystery 1930s timepiece that appears to turn of its own accord. For your own copy, direct to your inbox, go to monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers and I'm joined today by the journalist Ruth Michelson, who's based in Istanbul. Hello to you, Ruth. 
Good morning, Georgina. Uh, I'd like to start, please, picking up on one of those headlines, and that is the awful developments overnight in Israel and Palestine. Uh, so let's, uh, let's perhaps look at how this is being reported first in the Financial Times. Absolutely. So the Financial Times is focusing on um, what's been happening in the West Bank. Um, as you know, that uh, as you mentioned uh, at the top of the hour, there is obviously there is violence happening between um, the Israelis and the militant group Hamas in the Gaza Strip. But we're starting to see, um, as the Financial Times says, that although it's been a relatively quiet week in in the West Bank, um, which is the seat of Fatah, um, the uh, Hamas, Hamas's rival Palestinian faction, um, we're now starting to see that there is uh, what they call an escalation of violence. Um, and this is also, as they point out, this is um, as Israel is um, grappling with intercommunal violence across the country. There's been um, groups of right-wing Israeli settlers um, and Palestinians that have been clashing um, in what they're describing as mixed Israeli towns. Mm. Uh, now, Haaretz uh, has a really, really useful live blog. That is true. They've been blogging the uh, the latest developments. They also have a kind of a larger piece um, looking specifically um, at um, what they also say is the violence in, in so-called mixed cities. So last night that was particularly um, in, in Jaffa, um, so just, uh, just south of Tel Aviv. Um, and there was a, unfortunately, there is now a boy who's in an induced coma after being hit by a firebomb. And they're also talking about the residents of Lod who are now barred from leaving their homes um, after 9 p.m. because the authorities have attempted to implement a curfew um, to stop further violence. Mm. Now, there's a really interesting piece in that paper, too, about why the Israeli military decided to tell the foreign media that it had begun a ground invasion in Gaza when, in fact, that wasn't taking place. That's correct. This happened um, about, uh, this was a couple of nights ago. Um, Haaretz frames this, um, they talk to um, members of the foreign media um, about uh, how this affected their coverage because this was something that happened in English but not in Hebrew or in Arabic. Uh, the IDF announced that they would begin a ground incursion into Gaza um, and then it didn't happen and newspapers were forced to publish retractions. Um, and so Haaretz looks at this through the kind of lens of credibility um, and saying that they quote this American journalist who they don't name for understandable reasons, saying that this will not help Israel's relationship with the international media. It looks awfully, awfully transparent, the journalist said. I don't know how they reg regain the credibility that this costs them. Um, but if you look at the coverage in, for example, the Jerusalem Post, which is a little to the right of Haaretz, um, they say we don't really know about um, you know, the outcomes of uh, what the IDF decided to do in terms of this tactic of telling the international media that there was a ground invasion and there wasn't. Um, and they also say we don't really know about the, um, the out whether this was essentially successful. Did it do the thing that the IDF said it would do, which was to encourage members of Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad um, to essentially make moves on the ground that would make them easier to spot? Mm. I'm really interested in the fact that the US papers now seem to be finally waking up to the fact that there are terrible, terrible abuses of Palestinian rights going on. I mean, the Washington Post has a very good think piece. That's true. They have a think piece from um, the head of the Israeli NGO Bet Salem, 
Um, Bet Salem has also recently joined with Human Rights Watch in describing the situation inside um, Israel's apartheid, um, and that's essentially the focus of uh, this this op-ed. Um, the head of Bet Salem is essentially saying that the eruptions of violence um, that we see inside Israel-Palestine, um, especially what is occurring right now, things that they say are su sufficiently horrific to break into the global news cycle, this is not a feature, but this is a bug of this system. Mm. I mean, Ruth, do you feel that the tide is turning against Israel? Are people waking up to what's going on there? It certainly seems like there has been a shift in the media coverage. Um, I think that's something that we're seeing certainly from outside. There has been a different tone to the coverage and I think a lot of that um, follows uh, the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw last year, that people have um, across the world a kind of a different frame, a different lens, a different analysis when it comes to looking at police and state violence. And I think that that is really how people are viewing um, what's happening in Israel-Palestine at the moment. Mm. And I think it's also coming out more and more that one doesn't equate anti-Semitism with uh, being against what's happening in Israel. Absolutely not. I mean, we're seeing that with, um, as you say, some of the coverage in the American media in particular, to some degree in, in I think, in some of the British media as well, um, has been, there's been a lot more um, focus on um, Jews and Israelis who are speaking up and saying that, you know, there are understandable problems with, with what is happening in Israel-Palestine and that they feel a need to speak out. And so, you know, this is why we're now seeing, for example, Betzalem quoted in uh, the Washington Post in this way. Mm. Let's go to something a, a little more cheerful. Today is a great day for America, says President Joe Biden. Uh, this is about flinging off masks. Yes, uh, not exactly. Still, I mean, it's joyful, but it's proving to be quite controversial. So, yes, I mean, Joe Biden giving a speech in the Rose Garden um, saying that, you know, he and his staff went without masks. They're saying um, this is because of an announcement from the American Center for Disease Control, who say that if you are vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. So this is uh, we're seeing in some of the coverage in the American press that this is causing joy, but also confusion because, um, you know, as the AP says, um, they say that, you know, there isn't really a surefire way for businesses or private individuals to distinguish between fully vaccinated and unvaccinated people and that there are concerns about um, the idea that people who are perhaps against vaccination or who have some issues with vaccination um, are now also not going to be wearing masks and that there haven't been um, enough people vaccinated for this decision to come into force properly yet. Mm. Are people wearing masks in Istanbul? They, they certainly are. Um, there's pretty, uh, pretty tough rules on, on masks here. And I mean, um, we're also currently in a lockdown, so we're not really afforded the opportunity to see a lot of people wearing masks is not afforded to see a lot of people. Yeah, I have to say I quite enjoy my mask. I find that I'm doing all sorts of things behind it that I would never do if my face were on <laughs> show. Uh, grinning inanely for some reason. Why don't I smile? Getting lipstick all over the inside of it is something oh, that I've done. Yeah. Certain lipsticks, I've, I'm like, oh, I'll put this on, it'll be great. And then I realise immediately afterwards no one's going to see the bottom half of my face. And then I take the mask off and I get home and it's just, you know, I look like the Joker because there's lipstick all over the lower half of my face. I'm loving just not wearing anything on the bottom of it. No makeup at all. It's great. Anyway, let's move on. And actually, we're staying with healthcare here uh, because, uh, and this this also 
harks back to the colonial pipeline story. Um, Ireland's healthcare system was forced to shut down its entire IT system yesterday. Tell us more about this ransomware attack. Yes, so um, this was apparently, um, according to uh, the Irish Minister for E-Government, um, the Irish healthcare system, um, the entire um, IT system had to shut down because of an attack by an international cybercrime gang. Um, heart, that doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. Um, but apparently... Um, uh, their COVID-19 vaccination program wasn't directly affected because that's part of a slightly different system. But looking at the coverage, so for example, from Reuters, from the FT, and also abroad, because obviously these cyber attacks become global news. So ABC um, and then CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, CBC calls it the most widespread and possibly most significant cyber crime attack on the Irish state. But also not a huge amount of news about what um, the Irish healthcare system is able to do about this. So there's, um, you know, the little bit of coverage saying that they're essentially going through the system and trying to root out the problems and get things back to normal before Monday. But it seems that the Irish authorities have said the ransom has been sought. It won't be paid in line with state policy. This is um, uh, an Irish health service executive in the FT. Um, but other than that, it's sort of unclear if this is still going on on Monday, what they plan to do. Mm, and very worrying that we're seeing these attacks increasing across the world. Absolutely. I mean, it's in the CBC coverage as well. They say that um, part of Toshiba was also hit with a ransomware attack. Um, yesterday as well. So this is becoming a kind of disturbing new normal. Um, so there is some comparison, as you say, to um, the colonial pipeline attack. Um, the ABC coverage also mentions um, that uh, a similar kind of ransomware um, attack was enacted on um, a public school uh, district in Florida. They were demanding $40 million in ransom. Um, and so it's a, it's a particular kind of attack where they also steal files and demand money for those as well. Ruth, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But thank you very much for, for joining us. That's uh, Ruth Michelson in Istanbul. Well, now let's round up the things we learnt this week. Here is Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom owes someone money. Not, and you may want to brace yourself for the impact of this devastating satirical salvo, the citizens of London, who still want a word about 53 million quid which got spaffed on an unbuilt garden bridge during his stint as mayor, but a creditor, unknown as of this recording, whom Boris Johnson appears to have stiffed for £535. Actually, could it be someone who was contracted to build a 100,000th of the garden bridge? Like maybe lay a brick or plant a petunia? If this isn't a cue for the general muttered agreement clip, whatever would be. Yeah. 
We learned of the Prime Minister's impecunity because Private Eye magazine thought to search county court records and found a judgment against Johnson for that amount. So we've learned that should Johnson be unable to raise this sum soonish, the gaiety of the nation may be enlarged in coming weeks by hired goons kicking in the UK's most famous door and seizing the Downing Street trouser press. If £535 roughly is what trouser presses cost? Not that, judging by his usual deportment, Boris Johnson is familiar with such an appliance. Killing it this week we are. Actually, we learned, having just looked it up, that a standard Corby trouser press runs to about 170 quid. So if the bailiffs take three trouser presses and maybe a couple of Downing Street coffee mugs, that should get in there. Happy as ever to help. Anyway. Sticking with the subject of national leaders with somewhat opaque personal finances, we learned that Russian President Vladimir Putin's legendary prowess on the hockey rink has not waned during lockdown. President Putin returned to the ice in Sochi in an all-star game and scored no fewer than nine of his victorious team's 13 goals. We learned from the somewhat willfully lackadaisical demeanour of the other team that in hockey, as in most other fields of endeavour, it perhaps does not pay to oppose Putin too forcefully. And we learned that keenness in support for Putin's endeavours seems to be solid career sense, judging by the performance of the extremely enthusiastic commentator and, who knows, next mayor of Moscow. Here is that giddy encomium to the great helmsman's skills, as translated by Monocle 24's personality cult desk chief, Paige Reynolds. To the centre. Oh, a class pass there. Oh, and it's three for Vladimir Putin. Still a legend. Even though there are some really strong players on either side, Vladimir Putin took the initiative. In the United States, we learned that protection from the ravages of a potentially fatal disease is insufficient enticement to pitch up to receive a free vaccine, as far as the citizens of at least one state are concerned. Maestro, the official rock song of Ohio. We learned, because by golly we do our research, that the McCoy's lone hit, Hang On Sloopy, was formally enshrined as Ohio's official rock song by Ohio's State Congress in 1985. We also learned that at least one of the clauses of the exquisitely drafted pertinent resolution deserves a reading by Monocle 24's whimsical legislation desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. Whereas adoption of this resolution will not take too long, cost the state anything or affect the quality of life in this state to any appreciable degree, and if we in the legislature just go ahead and pass the darn thing, 
we can get on with more important stuff. We may be deviating somewhat from the point, which is that we learned that Ohio is seeking to overcome widespread reluctance vis-a-vis vaccines by offering five randomly selected jab ease a million dollars each, which, for UK listeners, is enough to clear Boris Johnson's debts 1,331 times over. And we learned of similar incentives elsewhere in the US. $100 for vaccinated state employees in Maryland, savings bonds for kids in West Virginia, a free fishing license in Maine, and in New Jersey, determined as always to pull the most New Jersey move available in any given situation, a free beer. New Jersey. New Florida, more like. And we learned of another sort of vaccine incentive invented by accident here in the UK, just like penicillin was. In the seaside settlement of Plymouth, there was confusion at Home Park, imaginatively named home ground of obstinately mediocre local sports team Plymouth Argyle FC. A queue for vaccines being dispensed at the stadium became enmeshed with a likely shorter queue for Plymouth Argyle season tickets. So we learned that those Plymouth supporters who misread the signs explaining which line was which have received a gift arguably worth even more than a million dollars. Not only are they now inoculated against COVID-19, they won't have to watch Plymouth Argyle next season. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. to another Andrew now. Let's hear our Editor-in-Chief Andrew Tuck's weekend column. Last Sunday, I went to Columbia Road Flower Market in London's East End. It's been a regular Sunday habit for decades. My friend Sharon and her partner used to live in a terraced house around the corner, and on Sundays, they'd invite you over for breakfast in their house filled with antiques and curios, and then you'd go and visit the flower stalls And occasionally, well, I might buy something bright for my rented room. After that, we might move on to Brick Lane, which also hosted a Sunday market, this time offering well-stocked stalls, selling everything from fruit and veg to discounted ladies' underwear. I'm not sure that I ever bought a thing, not even frilly knickers. Tempting, though. But on street corners, you would also see old men with sometimes no more than a cloth on the floor upon which would be displayed all manner of seemingly worthless and often broken crap. They were reminders of the poverty that had dogged the area for years, and they looked like they'd walked out of a Victorian photograph, vapour trails from vanishing worlds. The pubs, however, were hearty, and the Bangladeshi curry houses and Jewish bagel shops on Brick Lane lured people from across the city. But this was the polar opposite of the cooler neighbourhoods in West London, and visitors in Dorothy mode might be heard uttering a version of her famous phrase, Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Notting Hill anymore. But back to last Sunday. To get into the flower market, you now have to enter at one end and leave at the other, all in the name of COVID restrictions. By the time I got in line, there were a couple of hundred people ahead of me, but we snaked along at speed and in 15 minutes were in. 
The market has also been redesigned with stalls now just on one side of the street, which means that it's easier to get into compact shops, bakeries and coffee outposts and keep some distance from each other. The place was heaving. People were marching along with armfuls of peonies, olive trees held aloft, trays of ferns balanced precariously. It was the first time I'd been in such a glorious, joyous crowd since, well, since this all began. Then I thought I'd walk down past all the new apartment blocks near Brick Lane, see what stores had vanished after all the lockdowns, but aim for the brand new outpost of Italy, the epic retailer and restaurant business that started life in Turin back in 2007 and offers a very well put together taste of Italy. My timing was not great. The line to get in here was huge again, but this time slow moving. Hundreds of people wanting to be in a new shop, hundreds of people pulled in by the nectar of newness, excited by the buzz surrounding Italy's launch, and also excited to be in London. I was not very queue inclined on Sunday, but on Wednesday I returned to Italy for a pre-work recce mission. After months of retail feeling all a bit too essential, you need something so you order it online or go with purpose to a particular store, it was a renewed sensation to be surrounded by things that you really don't need but want. How did this shopping basket end up in my hand? Why was it filling up with wine, cakes for the team, jars of things whose purpose remained opaque even after staring at the label? Oh, it was great. And what was also wonderful was the intent, the purpose, the commitment. Yes, we all love a pop-up, but the belief and investment that have gone into the making of Italy is writ large wherever you look, including in the dozens of staff stocking shelves with wine from every region of Italy, preparing displays, slicing meat, making yet another Illy coffee. It was a sunny sign from Phoenix, London, that things could be back to normal in weeks. Some decry all this change, the flower market with all its Instagrammers, the arrival of big retail players, the march of new apartment blocks. I understand it. I saw that rougher, tougher neighbourhood. But the bagel shops and curry houses are still there, and while there are always tensions when cities morph, when neighbourhoods see their characters alter, this week East London has also seemed pretty amazing. Ambition is stalking the streets again, a city enjoying its fresh groove, and at last, some conversations that are not framed by the pandemic. Now, English Pen is one of the world's oldest human rights organisations, championing the freedom to write and the freedom to read around the world. It's the founding centre of Pen International, a worldwide writers' association with 145 centres in more than 100 countries. And the director, Daniel Gorman, joins me now. Dan, good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. Great to be here. Uh, now, one of the things that is concerning not only English Pen but many, many organisations is the academic freedom uh, part of the recent Queen's speech. What is it in that speech that, that particularly uh, worries the organisation? So, well, the draft bill has just been, been released and we're giving it proper scrutiny at the moment. Um, but I think essentially... What we're calling for is a proper period of consultation to trying to think through what are the key issues around speech on campus 
and what can best be done um, to to help make sure that there is proper debate discussion taking place on university campuses. And we're not convinced at this point that this bill actually will help rather than hinder more speech on campus. Um, there are a variety of, of key issues, uh, such as hostile powers being emboldened to investigate and sanction critical academics. We saw this around China um, quite recently. Um, we've seen universities um, that fail to comply with government orders, having had their sources of funding threatened. There's the prevent strategy. So there are a number of key issues, but what I've mentioned all come from state powers rather than from students. So I think we need to think through what are these key issues, and the government needs to think through this. What are the, what are the key issues, and how do we best address this? And in terms of the question of, say, uh, speakers not, not speaking on campus, we really feel that that is a cultural issue, not something that you can legislate around. And rather, there needs to be a broad and robust discussion with the universities in terms of thinking through how do, how do we deal with this and how do we do it best. Mm. And also, just to, just to be very clear, this, this issue, which is a major media issue around, around no platforming of speakers, really needs to be explored further to see what extent it is actually growing. Because the data that has been produced by the government's Office for Students really suggests it occurs on a very limited basis. For example, of more than 62,000 requests um, by students for external speaker events in English universities in 2017 to 2018, only 53 were rejected um, by the student union or university, which is less than 1%. Mm. So, I mean, it does seem that this draft legislation has been made without any consultation with relevant groups. Uh, that is our feeling. None of us, none of us <laughs> were, were consulted, at least. And when I say us, uh, we, did, we did a joint statement together with partner free expression organizations, Article 19 and Index on Censorship. And essentially what we're calling for is a ro robust and transparent and meaningful period of consultation. Yeah, absolutely. I was absolutely horrified immediately after the elections by um, a, a, a Conservative uh, cabinet minister uh, talking about how uh, now, uh, you know, the culture war just needs to be crushed. And it was just like, so what are you saying, actually, that this is an end to all of these things that people are discussing, like Black Lives Matter, like academic freedom, like Me Too? It seemed extraordinary that that should be a, a government line. It. it does appear to be the direction of travel, which is which is very concerning because legislation should be based on on data and not in terms of trying to score political points. And I think if, for example, within the context of this academic freedom bill, the, the government is saying that they're championing for free speech. And obviously we would question that when we look at the actual detail of what's in the academic freedom bill, because we would say that it would actually limit the speech of, of some academics and also of some students. Um, but then you see it hand in hand with the uh, the policing bill, which would limit freedom of assembly, limit rights for gypsy traveler and Roma communities. And our colleagues at Liberty are doing a lot of work on this. And then again, uh, also, which arrived in this week was the online safety bill, um, which again, there are question marks around because there's this category within that bill of, of this nebulous idea of legal but harmful content and how that must be restricted. Um, and that is a, a very challenging thing to do, as I think we will see over the coming weeks and months as that really gets discussed now in the public. Mm. Uh, Dan, something that is hugely in the news and that we were discussing earlier in the programme is the situation in Palestine. Uh, what is English Pen's uh, position on this? Well, yes, internationally, things are, things are, things are not good, and the, and the situation in Palestine is completely horrific. And... For, given that we are an organization focused on free expression, I think our, our specific 
aspect we would be looking at is the limits to free expression. And so we are absolutely horrified by the news of Israeli airstrikes that targeted buildings in, in the Gaza Strip, um, including media offices such as the Al Jawara office building, which contained the offices of at least 13 media organizations. And also there have been many verified reports of attacks against Palestinian journalists, um, mostly and uh, the vast majority emanating from the Israeli state. Um, so we would call on, on Israel to live up to its to uh, international law um, and also to cease hostilities. Um, we've also seen, and this maybe ties back in slightly with what we were saying earlier, that there has been examples of social media platforms limiting content from Palestine, which is very concerning. And this this largely appears to be down to the automation of content moderation, um, which is something that will certainly come up in terms of thinking through online safety and the online safety bill. So there's there's a need again for social media companies to ensure that that there is free expression coming from from those reporting on the ground in Palestine. Um, and also, as, as said, uh, we are very deeply concerned and horrified by, by the targeting of journalists and media outlets um, in, in, in this conflict. Mm, and this is something that I know English Pen works very, very hard to, to highlight and make sure that it doesn't uh, disappear from, from the headlines. Um, Daniel, I'd like to go on to, to, to a celebration, really, because it's a, a Pen's centenary this year uh, and there are lots of events coming up. Tell us more. There is, yes. And maybe just before I get it, get into the events, I think it would be, be good to mention and in some ways segueing from the discussion uh, discussion about Palestine and um, to talk about some of some of the cases that we are highlighting um, in this centenary, because we have, as, as, as well as the events, which, which I'll mention, we have an ongoing campaign called Pen Rights, um, which is essentially a letter writing campaign in solidarity with writers in prison and around at risk around, around the world. And this is a, a long term project for Pen. For decades, Pen has been has been supporting writers who are unjustly persecuted um, and pen members have long supported fellow writers by sending letters of support. So we're on uh, we're announcing new writers and new cases that we focus on on a, on a fairly regular basis and we have just announced the Egyptian writer and poet Galal al-Bahiri who is a pen rights case um, and we also have Nedim Turfent who's in prison in Turkey Pham Duan Trang is in prison in Vietnam, Emmanuel Asrat, um, the Eritrean writer who's been disappeared since 2001, and uh, Penn Belarus is the final case that we're working with. Um, you can find details of all of them on the English Pen website, which is englishpen.org. And then also, as you mentioned, um, celebrations. Yeah, so this year is 100 years of Pen, which is quite a remarkable thing that this this organization has been going for that long and the people have been having these conversations around free expression and around how do writers support other writers and how do we engage with each other on an international level um, for, for the past 100 years. And to mark that, we are having a, a series of, of really in, incredible events and that has already begun. Um, we had some brilliant events recently, including in partnership with the Bristol Festival of Ideas with Maria Ressa, um, the journalist in the Philippines, who's been very targeted as incredibly brave. And Gillian C. York, um, very recently this week, uh, the author of Silicon Values. We had a discussion with her at the Bristol Festival of Ideas. We also recently had a partnership with London Library, where there was a great event, for example, with Salman Rushdie. Those are all available online, and you'll be able to listen back to them if you look on the, on the various websites or on the English Pen website. And then we've got some very good events coming up and uh, next week there are two talks in partnership with the Institut Francais one on Tuesday the 18th with authors Alice Zeniter and Kauder Admi um, and Dr. Natalia Vince who are talking about 
literary ties in memory in Franco-Algerian relations. And then the following day on Wednesday the 19th, uh, Françoise Verge will be discussing her book, A Decolonial Feminism, in conversation with Galdem's uh, Diora Shadijanova. Um, and that book is a, a manifesto for intersectional feminism centered around anti-colonialism and anti-racism, which I think we could all do with some of in our lives at the moment. Absolutely. Um, and then just, just very quickly, just uh, next month we have a, a partnership with Hay Festival, um, which we'll see uh, Lydia Cacho, uh, Ribeiro and Samar Yezbek in conversation with the president of English Pen, Philippe Sands, um, about writing and courage. Um, and we have a partnership with Metal and Southend which will include our Rising Residence program with Daniel Shibley. And then just a, one last piece, which is that later in the year, in September, we will be having a three-day festival at the South Bank Centre, which will be announcing details of in June. So it would be great to chat to you maybe more about at that uh, about that at that time. Absolutely. Um, finally, Dan, a reminder that English Pen is not open just to writers, but also to readers. So, I mean, anyone can join to support the work of the organisation. Absolutely. Our, our membership is open and we would love to have um, Monocle listeners join. You can find details on the website. And it really is, uh, the membership is wide open for those who love literature and want to champion free expression and want to be involved in these conversations. So please do come along and join us. Daniel Gorman from English Pen. Thank you very much indeed. And that's all we have time for on today's programme. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our supervising producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>